To be or not to be? No, I'm not being Shakespeare. The question is to be or not to be in the office. That's the question on the minds of many federal employees after the White House updated guidance around federal telework. A federal news network survey found that many feds either think they'll have to start going back to work more often in the office. Many others, though, are not so sure. Here to discuss the details of the latest FNN survey, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. All right, Drew, you did a pretty big survey here. First of all, how many people responded? We got 4,700 responses, Tom, and that is a huge number. If you compare it to the survey we did last year, around this time last year, we had about 3,000 responses. All right. So give us some of the results. What are people saying here? It is kind of difficult to say across the board that there's one clear takeaway here, but when asked if if federal employees think that return to office plans will change based on the OMB memo, 40% say yes, they think an increase in in in-office work is coming. 20% say no, they don't think things will change very much. And another 40% say they really just don't know. And I think that is kind of the through line here. A lot of people are unsure about what this memo is really going to mean, what their agency leadership is going to do about it, and, you know, how how soon and when things are going to change here. Yes, that uh, memo, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in a few minutes, though, is first to understand what it's going to do, you have to be able to decipher it. And that itself, I think, takes a PhD in gobbledygook. Anyway, that's just me saying that. And generally, feds feel how about teleworking? Did the survey show? Federal employees are generally really positive about telework. They think that it makes them more productive. They say it helps them meet agency mission a lot more effectively. And they think that, you know, it shouldn't really be a one-size-fits-all approach to telework. Of course, we know that not every federal employee, not every government agency can have complete telework or complete remote work. But federal employees say that, you know, continue using telework where it makes sense. And it's something that they're really largely in favor of. That's something that has been very, very consistent for for years. Right. The people I've spoken with that were not teleworking, that have been teleworking because they had to when the disease came around and has receded, they don't necessarily want 100% telework. They like the option to go to the office, but it seems to be like a three days home tele and two days in the office seems to be kind of what people have settled into and are pretty happy with it. That That is generally the trend. And I think where the concern is coming from is that a lot of federal employees feel that, you know, the ones who feel that telework might be decreasing and in-office work might be increasing in response to the OMB guidance that makes them concerned, and they don't really want to be coming back into the office more often. Of course, that's not everyone, but roughly two-thirds of our survey respondents said that they would consider or would look for a new job if their agency increased in-office work. Right. People say that, but I'm not so sure. And about agencies' leadership approach to telework, I mean, that's there is policy setting that has to happen. It's kind of been ad hoc at this point. How do the feds in the survey view their agency's leadership approach? One of our questions asked basically on a zero to 100 scale, how does your agency view telework? And they got what I would call a D minus rating. They got a 65 out of 100 just as an average for how agency leaders are looking at telework. And I think that a lot of federal employees, at least in the survey and in the responses, think that, you know, some agency leaders may be becoming a little bit less telework friendly as time is going on. And that is a 
a remaining concern for them. And the reason for that is so hard to tell. I mean, the people that are looking that are not leadership often think it's, well, they're just a dinosaur that if you can't count the noses, you can't tell the work is being done. They want to see the heads in the cubicles and et cetera. Maybe a more enlightened view is they just don't know. And they're being held responsible for the output of the agency. And they're unsure of what the effect of telework might be. Although the evidence over the past three years is relative to the three years prior, you really can't tell the difference. That's right. And I think that federal employees, at least according to the survey, again, are saying that productivity is actually increased because of telework. And, you know, that's something that's a view shared by federal employees, a lot of leaders, federal union leaders, and a lot of lawmakers as well, at least on the Democratic side. So, you know, that that is generally the, the viewpoint, at least from the survey results here. And what telework policy do the survey respondents say they think is best? They like it how it is. <laughs> they say that it really shouldn't be a one-size-fits-all approach. It should be based on what is the actual function of your position? What makes sense for you? If you're just going to be going into the office and sitting on Teams calls, sitting in Zoom meetings, I think federal employees generally don't see the value in coming to the office just for that. Sure. Yes, that's right. If so many people are always tele, a certain percentage, let's say, are always telecommuting or teleworking, then wherever you are, you're going to be on Teams, Zoom, et cetera, et cetera. Right. It's, it's I think that's kind of a driving factor here is, you know, it again, depends on the function of the position. Sure. And let's get to that Office of Management and Budget memo. It was 19 pages. I cut it and pasted it, because it was a PDF, of course, into Word and found it was more than 7,800 words, all to tell management to update their telework policy. So (laughs) what have you been hearing about it? There has been quite a range of response to the memo, Tom, and I think that generally it's creating more questions than it is answers right now. A lot of federal employees think that, as the survey results show, that telework will decrease. Another half says telework will not decrease. So I think there, there's just a lot of questions around what it actually says. But if you look into the memo and the actual language of it, it says essentially agency managers should look for ways to increase in-office work while still maintaining the flexibility of telework. So it is a bit of a middle-of-the-road approach. And there was that reference to community needs And I think that was sort of a code for the fact that there's a lot of pressure from state and local level officials, especially in the cities that have large federal presences that are facing high office occupancy rates and harm, in their opinion anyway, to the restaurant business and so on, that feds are somehow under obligation to be in their offices to support the city economies. And a lot of feds are pretty vehement, hey, that's not my job. My job is my job. Right. I think that that pressure is coming down a lot on the Biden administration here. And it's coming from a lot of lawmakers as well. A couple months ago, we saw the Show Up Act pass the House. And that's one that would, if it was enacted, would return federal employees to pre-pandemic telework. So there is a lot of conversation and talk and concern around this topic, something that is making federal employees feel uncertain, feel nervous about changes when they are saying that they feel happy where they are. Sure. And, you know, I think one driving factor is just the commute in in the city as well. 
Yes, I think right. I don't think it's the office so much as the commute. As a as I, I have an aversion to commute after forty five years of it. I've had jobs as close as one block from where I was living to you know thirty miles. <laughs> one block beats thirty miles. Let me tell you, a fourteen step staircase in a four bedroom colonial. That's even closer. And you've also been getting hints that. What OMB is saying in privately without the memo is we want people back more. That is something I have heard from a couple different sources. Apparently, OMB in the memo says that it is, you know, back and forth and there should be kind of a mix of both. But there are a couple reports that apparently in conversations with agency leadership, maybe they are saying, okay, you know, you should actually bring people back to the office more. Okay. And then there is the in-office people. There are those that like to work in the office, that want to be there, that want to be around the colleagues and the cubes and the coffee. Hey, a new expression, C-cubed, coffee, colleagues, and cubicles. They have ideas on what might make in-office itself more pleasant or productive. There were a couple of different ideas thrown around from the survey respondents. They talked about collaborative meetings. So sometimes in-person meetings can be beneficial when you're talking with a whole team. They also talked about flexibility with work hours. But really, the biggest takeaway here is that when asked, federal employees said actually nothing would make in-office work more productive or more pleasant. A lot of people are saying, no, I just want to continue teleworking and just continue how things have been going. (laughs) Keep your foosball table, right? Exactly. (laughs) And your cafe latte maker. So what comes next? Agencies have to do this analysis because at the end of this memo, there were a lot of deadlines going out to 150 days. Yep, there's a lot of deadlines. The first one coming up is just a couple of weeks away, about mid-May. We'll see agencies submit their initial work environment plans. These are going to look at different factors or ways to measure the productivity of an agency. And after that, we'll see them present those plans to OMB throughout the summer. And it's going to be a an ongoing change, ongoing updates as as they measure changes in productivity. And listen, OMB doesn't know all the data, so you can always make it up to support what it is you want to do with your agency. Not advising that, but I think it's a strategy a few people might take. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thank you. And be sure to check out her full report on that survey at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to 
be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. 
And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have You mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I I have a takeaway in in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort I, of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. 
Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.